Hello, Rob Daniel here, and you are listening to the Movie Robcast. To keep our London Film Festival coverage to a manageable episode length, we decided to break it down into multiple episodes. So in this instalment, you will hear Rob Wallace and myself discuss Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho and Julia de Cornell's Palm Door winner, Titan. So without further ado, on with the show. brings you down then? I'm studying Something in my dreams. There was a girl. And you are? Sandy. I got this kind of gift. Can see people, places, things others can't. This is the closest most people ever get to their dreams. They're not just dreams. Jack, I don't want to do this. You think you can just walk away? It really happened. What did you see? Hello. Saturday has arrived and we have a couple more films to talk about. And we are standing in a good place, which to anyone who saw Last Night in Soho will know this is where the character of Eloise, played by... Thomas and Mackenzie. Thomas and Mackenzie, thank you very much. This is where she lives. So we've come to the place and actually the building, well the exterior of the building is here and we're looking at it now so it's quite a nice place to do the podcast and to talk about our thoughts about last night in soho and titan or titan the jury is still out on how we pronounce that one i went with mr wallace i just think that titan sounds very very french yeah much more than titan but why are you now doubting yourself because i've heard it pronounced the other way and i don't think i've heard it, anybody else pronounce it as titan so but I, mean, I could just assume that everyone else is wrong have you heard an authority pronounce it? I mean, like, yeah, I, did Kermode call it? I don't know. I haven't, heard, I haven't heard an authority pronounce it either way. It just felt more natural to me that it would be Titan. Yeah, that sounds completely correct to me, so we will have to see. Anyway, we're going to call it Titan, I think, because that just sounds, as you said, much more correct and much more French. But we'll get on to that in a minute, because right now we're going to talk about Last Night in Soho, the new film by Edgar Wright. His first film since... Baby Driver. was Baby Driver, yeah, wasn't it? So yeah. His... Yes, it was. Yeah, his first film since Baby Driver, which was his first real hit, did over $100 million in the States, and unfortunately has become a bit of a film that isn't going to be as fondly remembered because Kevin Space is in it, and also Ansel Elgort is the lead. And There are certain, yes, um, allegations against him. Yeah, that's right. But I think in this one, so the cast of this one, 
Thomas and Mackenzie, as we already mentioned. Anya Taylor-Joy plays Sandra. Sandy. Sandy, thank you. And we've got Matt Smith plays Jack. And there's also just a roster of great faces from the 60s. So there's Diana Rigg, Rita Tushlingham, Terence Stamp, Margaret Nolan from the Carry On films and Dink from Goldeneye. No, um, sorry, from Goldfinger. I was up at five o'clock this morning. We're going to get to that as well. She has a one-shot appearance and it kind of, I thought, oh, I do really, really recognise her and then saw her name in the end credits and it was like, oh, wow, that was Margaret Nolan, the dear departed Margaret Nolan. So anyway, what is the story in a nutshell for Last Night in Soho? Okay, I'm actually going to go over the Wikipedia premise because that's the one I've got open. Eloise, a young woman with a passion for fashion, design and a strange sixth sense, finds herself transported back in time to 1966 London in the body of an iconic nightclub singer of the era named Sandy. While in Sandy's body, Eloise begins a romantic relationship, but she begins to realise that Sandy's life in the swinging 60s is not as glamorous as it appears to be, and both past and present begin to fall apart with horrifying consequences. That's, that's actually pretty good, I thought. I might have to refer to that when I'm actually writing up my review. Oh. Yeah, that is the story of the film. So what did we think of the film? I liked it, but it's very much... There are a couple of twists in there, which I don't think it gives anything away to say, but there aren't any surprises. Yeah. It's really well made. I mean, it's Edgar Wright knows his cinema, and he's made a film that I think, we've, I think we decided on is kind of like a cross between Peeping Tom and Goodnight Sweetheart. Yeah, it is. It's um, So Peeping Tom meets Goodnight Sweetheart meets The Burb of the Crystal Plumage. Which sounds like an amazing film, right? I mean, that is not going to be a bad movie, but... And it's not a bad movie. It's just... I thought it was going to be more. I was actually really, really looking forward to this film. I love the cast. I thought that the idea of it was very good. I really liked the stills of it that I'd seen. And the trailer was really good, although I thought the trailer was giving a lot away. Actually, the trailer has a pretty good misdirect in it. So it's like, okay, well, that's interesting. I have to go back and watch the trailer now. Fittingly for a film about a fashion designer, the design of the film is very good. It looks great, and it makes London look great, and it has those heavy red and blue gels that anyone who loves their Jallo cinema or their 1980s horror cinema will just get on board with that look. It has some amazing visual effects when the Eloise character goes back in time, sees the Sandy character, and they flit between each other within the same shot with these amazing invisible digital edits i mean i don't think you could do this film really before the last 10 years or so in terms of the cgi in there it's because the person who's there is not the person in the reflection which is that's right and there's some really really good mirror work where thomas in mckenzie is the reflection of annie taylor joy and all that stuff comes kind of in the first half and i was thinking okay this is good i'm enjoying this it's building up to something i'm sure there's a lot of things in it that i've seen in other films but i'm enjoying that as well and then it kind of just didn't really add up to much, I didn't think. I thought it was it was a fun movie. I will watch it again, and it was a fun movie, but I thought, you brought in some big themes here about women, women's place in the 60s. Exploitation. And the swinging 60s and the dark underbelly of the swinging I, 60s. I think it's ironic. That I probably won't be the only one who thinks this. I much preferred the glamorous swinging 60s wish fulfillment stuff to the actual horrible seedy underbelly that you know is there. Because, yeah, all the scenes where she first steps back in time and finds herself in the body of Sandy, Thunderball on the marquee, Matt Smith as this charming, debonair Jack. Yeah. And there's a wonderful scene, and it's in the trailer, where Sandy, well, it, it's revealed to us that Anya Taylor-Joy can sing. Yep. 
which you know of course you can why well, you know i just you know <laughs> assume that everybody's multi-talented stage trained and stuff yeah, yeah. and uh, that was a genuine goosebumps moment for me yeah it was a good moment the film just takes a moment to watch her perform a song on stage isn't it and not to spoil anything but that's kind of the last moment of real fun in that swing and 60s section yeah and that was a nice moment yeah, I'm with you. I, and I think the reason, I mean, obviously, you can like the swinging sticks, this stuff, when it's fun more because it's more fun than the darker stuff that comes later on. But I actually think it's one of those things where when it gets into the darker stuff, the logic of the film begins to really wobble. And it's like, okay, so how is this working? And what are the parameters of Eloise's ability for, you know, this sixth sense that she seems to have? The sixth sense seems to be not really defined and seemed to be driven more by what the plot needed her to do, I thought. Yeah, and that's the... It becomes slightly more sort of standard jallo, you know, when at the point where, you know, these reality starts to collapse. And, you know, she's sort of experiencing a breakdown and she's at art college, her character, and her relationships with the other students and you know, one in particular who's played... Who played, you know, kind of her best friend, potentially love interest played by Michael Ayayo plays John yeah. and there's a lot of nice stuff in there and okay this is going to sound really dismissive of Edgar Wright as a filmmaker which is not intended to be Edgar Wright is a pop filmmaker yeah and this movie can't be really because I think the issue is that he makes films that are really fun but quite surface yeah and because of that, a lot of the stuff doesn't land as well as it should. It ends up feeling a bit superficial. Like, you're enjoying the genre trappings, but you're not really getting much beyond that. Yeah, I thought that. And that reference to Jallo is very good, because Jallo is a subgenre of horror films that is often dismissed as being all surface, no substance. There's actually some very, very interesting things going on in the best Jallos, often around gender, male-female roles. And here it was like, well... Talk about Titan already. Well, that's the thing, because, yeah, there is some crossover in the two, and we'll get onto that soon. But really, it was like, well, you've got the look of the jello. There's a couple of really, really great shots in there. Eyes reflected in a knife blade and things like that that I think are quoted from... I think there's a film called A Blade in the Dark, I think it is, or something like that, that might have a shot like that in there. But there are shots that are obviously taken from the films by Argento and Mario Bava and yeah, maybe even Lucio Fulci and those sort of guys. And I love that stuff. The issue is that it's like... Not really adding anything to that. Yeah, it's like, I'm, I get the references, I like the fact that it's there, I like the fact that that style of filmmaking is, is living on for the next generation, but I just get the impression that I've seen this all before, and I would prefer to go back and watch those films maybe more. But I mean, I will watch this again, but it was, I don't know why, because you're absolutely right, I think Edgar, um, Edgar Wright is a very accomplished, visually fun-to-watch filmmaker. And I thought this was going to have a bit more to it. And in some ways, it gets a lot darker than I thought it was going to. But it still only stays on the surface. Yeah. But the acting, I thought, was very good. Yeah, the cast are great. I mean, Thomas and Mackenzie plays, does play this wallflower who finds herself liberated through the persona of sandy well sorry through through the figure of sandy and then it sort of it does explore the you know the darker aspects of that matt smith is you know just got charisma to burn mm -hmm. he immediately settles into this role uh, and you tell joy is i was wondering like oh she looks so good in the trailer and it's obviously such a you know if it wasn't already a star it would be a star making turn the film doesn't give her enough to kind of 
yeah to really land yeah. the potential of that i that's a really good point i was thinking that as well because there's actually a point towards the end of the film when it's like oh annie taylor joy hasn't been in this very much for the second half of this movie and there is an element to that in terms of so the eloise character is a wallflower she does live her life as a reflection of those around her and she's also someone who lives in the past she loves the idea of the 60s she loves the myth of the 60s and she only listens to old 60s songs because that's what her gran rita tushingham was listening to so that kind of works but i thought it does kind of rob the character of real drive and agency when it comes to her kind of affecting any kind of change and she does but she does it in a way that is only because the plot needs her to rather than it actually coming from her character i thought and we can't get into spoilers, but there are some things where it's like, mm, I thought that the time travel thing here would have been treated... Yeah, indeed, and would be something that could be changed and played around with a bit more. Yeah, because it's more sort of... Uh, it's more uh, like an echo of our life, yeah, isn't it's it? it's more sort of like, I don't know, Eyes of Laura Mars or something, in terms of you're getting a window on something that you can't actually influence, really. And I think, to your point, that's why it seems very surface. It's like, well, we can't influence this, and uh, the characters are having a hard job doing it as well, which means that all we can do is look. Luckily, it's a very nice film to look at. And the cinematographer was Chung Chung Hoon, who is um, a South Korean cinematographer. Could you quickly look up what they've done? Because I've seen something with them that was shot by them recently. And they are... It's a name that I always think, oh, good, I'm glad that they shot this because they are good at what they do. Uh, he's serving as the cinematographer on Obi-Wan, on the Disney series that's coming up. Cool. And what have they done uh, before? He, Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. He did It. It. Okay. No, there were some other ones, but... Um, old Boy. That's <laughs> okay, right. Uh, Lady Vengeance. I'm a cyborg, but that's okay. He does a lot. He's done, done a lot of Park Chanuk. <laughs> that's it. I watched Lady Vengeance again recently. Stoker, The yeah. Handmaiden. I mean, he's basically Park Chanuk's go-to. Yeah, and if you want your film to look good, you go to the cinematographer that Park Chanuk will always go to because, heavens, his films look great. Cinematographer on one of my films of the decade and one of the best-looking films of the decade. Which will be The Handmaiden. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yes, that was Last Night in Soho. Not great. Still worth a look. It does make London look very good. It is very nice, actually, to be in good place and to stand in front of the building. We were standing in the middle of London very early this morning. You about half hour before me, because we had to queue up to get this. Because at the moment, the way that the LFF has worked this year, you're not entirely guaranteed, even for the films that play across multiple screens, to get into the press screening. So therefore, you have to rock up really early. So I rocked up this morning at half past six in the morning for an eight o'clock showing and um you were already there yeah i mean i, I admittedly had less far to travel though i did walk in being at leicester square at half five in the morning on a saturday you definitely get the london experience you know people who are still pissed out from the night before um lots of people coming up asking for for change or to borrow your lighter and one encounter that was a little bit reminiscent of last night, a certain aspect of last night in Soho. Well, I'm going to go into it. I wasn't there, but you were propositioned. Well, you and the person you were with were propositioned by a um, a lady who appeared to be typically work at night. Yes, and she came up and sort of tried to sort of engage us in conversation. How are you doing? Da, 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 and tried that a couple of times, and we sort of yeah, we're just queuing up to see this film. And admittedly, it did look a bit sketchy. We were just kind of hanging around this closed theatre cinema on Leicester Square at half past five on a Saturday morning. And eventually, she was like, I "Think I, I said to her, yeah, we're just we're literally yeah, we're here for the first film. You know, it's last night in Soho." And she basically went, "Oh, just fuck's sake!" And just just stormed off. It's like all the life and colour of London you will see very early in the morning. Because when I got there, because I got there at half six, and the casinos were just beginning to kick out 
and it was like wow okay so there are people that are just kind of finishing their night out now heavens their lives are slightly different to mine <laughs> i couldn't I'm just i'm not going to go to a casino and spend the entire night there i'm afraid yeah we did have one guy try and usher us into a strip club as well so that was <laughs> so you were you really were getting the last night in soho experience then um yeah, I had approached by literally a dozen people over the course of a couple of hours and there was this one guy who had these three women with him they looked like dancers and this was eight o'clock in the morning and they were all very very refreshed and um well one of them started doing really quite amazing backward roll on the concrete in just a blouse and a skirt and it was like i think you've got your beer coat on round, but i think you're gonna have some bruises come this afternoon but uh well this is interesting i've not seen this for a while this um the end of a very very long night out but anyway that was quite a nice way to lead into the movie but tough getting up at five but you were even earlier i think yeah i was up at four four o'clock <laughs> That's how hard we work to bring you these wonderful thoughts. So that was last night in Soho. Hello, Rob D here, just interrupting the flow of the conversation. But before we get on to Titan, a few days later, Mr. Wallace and I recorded a couple of other points we wanted to include about last night in Soho. We were recording in the Royal Festival Hall just as a London Film Festival movie kicked out, so there is some background chatter. If you listen closely, you'll probably hear someone plotting a murder. We need to say a couple more things about last night in Soho. So I'll go first. So the other thing that I meant to say was that Thomas Mackenzie does a very good West Country accent. So she's from New Zealand, and a West Country accent, I think, is quite hard to do without making it sound a bit yokel, a bit like the Wurzels. So I thought that was quite a bold decision, and there is a reason for her to have an accent when all of her friends just have that very posh London accent but yeah I thought she landed the accent really well and my only other addition was to say that actually on retrospect uh, the most fantastical element of the film is the fact that present day sequences in Soho don't have any souvenir shops or American candy shops yes when you pointed that out it was like oh yeah there aren't any of the ubiquitous American candy stores that are all over London now I did also have a conversation with somebody earlier today where we both noted actually that the Soho presented in the film is very non-queer. There's absolutely nothing LGBT. That's a good point. I mean, um, yeah, because there are some scenes that are on Old Compton Street. I suppose it's one of those things where it's not telling a gay story. The background is kind of like, yeah, window dressing to the story being told. But oh, no, yeah. it's, it's a fair point, though. Oh, yeah, it's just interesting and, you know, given Soho. And as you say, it's not part of the story. It might not be a part of Soho. Edgar Wright's really familiar with. And if it was part of the story, people would expect it. You'd expect them to do something with it. Titan, the Palm Door winner, the one that if anyone who listened to the episode we did when we were talking about the LFF films and the LFF films that were really getting us excited would have heard me gush over the brochure description of Titan, the Palme d'Or winner, by Julia Decornau, is it? That's the one. Yeah. So she directed Raw, and she made a real splash with Raw, a film that I haven't seen, and I do feel... I mean, I love my horror films. Apparently it's one of the most important horror films of the past five years, and I feel a bit guilty that I haven't seen it. I have to admit, I now feel less guilty having seen her follow-up effort. It was fine... Really surprised it won the Palm Door. Again, it was it was one of those things where it's like, I've seen the films that you are referencing here, so therefore I have seen this done. I think better and more interesting 
and this again seems like a bit of a pastiche of these past movies so to give a quick plot synopsis it is and rob's going to fill in the actor names for me it is about a woman called alexia played by agatha russell thank you very much and as a kid she's involved in a traffic accident she needs to have a plate in her head we then skip forward to when she's an adult she is a professional dancer at like a motor show Yes, she seems to dance at shows, so she dances at motor shows, and there's a reference to her dancing at a boat show. She has a following of guys who'll always turn up to get a selfie with her and stuff like that. She has some very dark demons that she doesn't really battle with. She just embraces them. She's a very, very violent person. She does very, very violent things. Something happens that she has to go on the run, and at that point she um, kind of needs to adopt a new identity and then becomes involved with a group of firemen, the lead of which is a guy called Vincent, played by... Uh, Vincent, played by Vincent Lindor. Yeah. So... Although I think I've discovered that my tactic is just lean into the... Uh, like if you make it sound as French as you possibly can, you might be in the ballpark. Yes, I did have, um, I did have a friend once who uh, almost took a swing at me when I pronounced... Well, I would say that Vincent Cassel, that's how you say his yeah. name. Vincent Castle just sounds like, yeah, you're getting it wrong. But my mate said, Vonson Casal, you pretentious fucker. And he's like, well, I think that's how you say his name. I'm just trying to say his name properly. Anyway. Yeah, so Vonson Landon is this guy who um, is a captain of a fire station and Alexia kind of falls in with him when she's on the run. And this is a film, I really like this film. At the beginning of this film, I thought, this is a film, I think, that deals with female sexuality and female bodies in a much more interesting way than Last Night in Soho. It's much more daring. It's uncomfortable in the best way that horror films should be. And for the first 20-odd minutes, was like, yeah, I'm really into this movie. And then I have to admit, I just thought it kind of couldn't choose a lane. It was 60 flavours in one, and I didn't think that any of the stories and the myriad subplots were really developed that much, and I thought it just kind of lost its way in the end. I actually preferred it, I think, after the first 20 minutes. Wow, okay, why is that? Just because... The first 20 minutes is intriguing and it and gets increasingly transgressive. And there's, yeah, you say lots of body horror around. It, uh, yeah, to, to describe any of them would be to spoil it, but it's very, um, I think you described it as being tactile. I wasn't that interested in the serial killer stuff. No, me neither. I mean, it's because it's like, I've, I've definitely seen this before. And I don't think that De Cornell was particularly interested in the, in the serial killer stuff either. It's almost just like a character beat. I think that's been quite kind. I would say it's just like a plot contrivance just to get her on the run. And But there's a lot of time that is dedicated to it and a very, very big set piece, an element of which kind of reminded me of Possessor, mm. directed by Brandon Cronenberg, David Cronenberg's son. This film, whoo, this film owes a debt of gratitude to David Cronenberg, particularly Crash, because Alexia... Crash is such a... Yes, there's a, definitely an auto, uh, auto-erotic yes. component. It really is an auto-erotic component. And she loves cars and is able to physically manifest her love of cars. And I thought some very, very interesting and... Provocative. Yep, indeed. And also funny ways, because this film is a black comedy. The black comedy does work. And there are some moments where I thought, yeah, this is just what I wanted it to be. But to be honest, I just thought that in the end, it, it didn't know what it wanted to be. It just became like a series of scenes, some of which were very, very good, some of which were kind of interesting, and some of which were like, okay, so we're kind of going to pay some lip service to plot and to character, but... Uh. I'm a little upset that I... 
managed to guess how it was going to end about 20 minutes before. Yeah, indeed. And that's actually, I mean, it's, it's well done that you managed to do that. Although I was expecting, I can't get into it without spoiling it, but there is a particular condition she finds herself in. And I thought they were going to go all out on that and have something that would be incredibly <laughs> memorable in how that particular condition would end. And it doesn't really. And I thought, okay, so they've actually gone for, in a way, quite a cosy way to end that. You're going to, you, you're probably to cut this because it is a spoiler, but I, I, I guess, like, you know, the. the yes, and all between I'm going to remember it. That would have been transgressive. Not as transgressive as the fact that I have just reversed about the last 10 to 15 seconds of what we've been talking about, because it was a big spoiler. But yes, that was what I was thinking was going to end. And I thought that would have been fantastic. As it is, it's like, I thought it would be a bit more daring, particularly as it was such a controversial choice for Palm Door. And I thought it was going to give me some things I hadn't seen before. I was kind of expecting something like Crash. I was also expecting something like Itchy the Killer. And there were elements of that, but yeah, I thought, okay, so again, I'm kind of being reminded of better films that I've seen already. This film is not the guaranteed winner of Mad as Arseholes for 2021. No, because our previous Mad as Arsehole films have been... What was that one? What was uh, the Scarlett Johansson one? Was it Lucy? Yes. Yeah. Which is like, that's a Mad as Arseholes film because you take a basic premise and then you go... <laughs> Malignant, actually, is much more of a Mad as Arseholes film than Titan. Just I mean, I really. Like, being a Mad as Arseholes film, you don't necessarily have to have the most outrageous premise it's all about what you do i mean like rules don't apply the um warren Beatty howard hughes biopic was our mad as assholes because it's like it does just really unexpected things and the accountant was our mad as assholes film because again it's like oh it's a film about an autistic hitman yeah that's right so yeah and but it's like it's a studio movie that does really unusual things with that whereas this is like it's unusual in its conception but not in its, it's mad in itself we're describing this film as not taking it far enough but yeah you're right it's mad in its conception but the execution is we've got a little bit of that a little bit of this i actually found it mild shock cinema it's one of those things that you think all oh, people might not be able to see this one and they might have to approach with caution there's a couple of moments in there there's a moment of self-harm involving a nose that was good fun it was good fun in terms of the horror film setting but it didn't have the same impact as a similar moment in The Lobster. There's a moment in The Lobster that's very, very similar, and that just went through me. And in this one, it's like... Feels like that hurt, but yeah. I'm... Yeah, I just feel as if I've seen this before. And, um, and in terms of being Palm Door winner, do you mind just having a quick look to see what the other nominees were? Because when I heard it had won the Palm Door, I was really happy, because I'm always really happy when horror-inflected, transgressive cinema wins a really, really big prize. And to be honest, the French are likely to give that sort of film the big prize. I think they gave Crash the jury prize at Cannes. It didn't win the Palm Door, but I think it won the jury prize. And they do like bold cinema. So I was very happy when I heard that it won. But then when I saw the film, it was like, oh, okay, what were the other nominees? The other films include some which are playing at the festival. I mean, there's Annette by Leos Carax, which is already released in the UK. There's Benedetta, Paul Verhoeven, which we will be seeing. Uh, Bergman Island, which we missed. There's Drive My Car. Okay, yeah. By uh, Rasuke Hamaguchi. There's, I'm not reading the book, Flag Day, the Sean Penn one. Uh, there's The French Dispatch by Wes Anderson. Uh, a Hero by Asghar Farhadi. I'm not going to read them all. A Memoria by uh, Apichatpong Wirasetikal. Yeah. Uh, Nitrum by Justin Kurtzel. Oh, okay, yeah. Red Rocket by Sean Baker. 
The Worst Person in the World by Wacom Trier. So you saw Red Rocket. Would you say... Red Rocket, I really like. Red Rocket, I prefer because it's more my sort of thing. I mean, if this film had been absolutely mad, it might have won me over a bit more. Red Rocket is just... Sean Baker's a very good documentary of human messiness and human decency. There's a little bit less human decency in this one because it follows a guy who's essentially a bit of a hustler. Um, who's, you know, he's a, he's a retired porn star. It's much more of a character study, but you do spend like a big chunk of the film just waiting to see how he's going to fuck it up. Mm. I kind of get why this one in terms of making a statement. Yeah, just going back to what you said about my comment about the tactile nature of the body horror, that is the one area that I thought, yes, you can do that very well. And I haven't seen Raw, but I'm presuming that Raw does something yeah. similar. And there was a lot of that in the opening 20 minutes, not just in terms of like, yeah, the big special effects. And there are some special effects in this that are very good, but more in terms of like, so Alexia gets her hair caught on this other woman's nipple stud at one point, and it begins to tug. And there's just this very intimate horror that it does in terms of, you know, wince-inducing elements of pain inflicted on the body and things like that. The woman who plays Alexia is um, quite androgynous-looking, and there's some real gender fluidity in there as well, which becomes more of the story as it goes on. But I thought, yeah, this has got all these really, really interesting elements in it. Julia de Cornau is this fated new director of horror cinema. I can't wait to see what she does with, it has to be said, some very, very topical themes. And ultimately it was like... I could have done with less scenes of the firefighters having a dance and more scenes of exploring the more transgressive elements of this. So yeah, good, not great for both the films, I think, from me, actually. Yeah, me too. Yeah, that's us done for the day. Hello again. Rob D here once more to give you the plugs. If you like that, then why not leave us a rating and or review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And you could even tell a friend to check us out if you think that they might like the show. If you want to follow Rob Wallace on Twitter, he's at Robert M. Wallace. For his rather splendid writings, go to ofallthefilmsites.com. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. You can find my writing at electric-shadows.com. We also have a sister podcast, Another Time McLeod, which goes through the 1986 classic Highlander, Minute by Minute ish. You can hear that wherever you listen to this podcast. It's also on Twitter at McLeodTime. If you have any Highlander thoughts and want to email them to us, you can do so at whowantstopodforever at gmail.com. So, thanks very much for listening, and we'll speak to you again very, very soon.